Listener Production. In this episode of The Briefing, the facts on long COVID. There's still so much we don't know about it and it could affect hundreds of thousands of Australians. So we'll ask how prevalent is it? How does it actually feel to have long COVID? And should there be an NDIS-style payment for long-term sufferers? The fatigue, the brain fog... You also have a loss of identity and sense of self, um, and that can be really challenging mentally. You know, you have to kind of think of yourself as a a whole different person and try not to compare yourself to who you were having pre-COVID. The facts on long COVID. That's our briefing topic in the second half of this episode. I'm Tom Tilley. It's Wednesday, the 20th of July, and for the headlines, I'm joined by Antoinette Latouf. It's official, the UK has hit 40 degrees for the first time as Europe swelters through one of its worst heatwaves on record. At least 10 fires have broken out near London with the city's fire brigade declaring a major incident. We simply can't cope with the number of fires across our city directly attributable uh, to the heatwave we're experiencing, the dry grass you've heard about, uh, the way the fire spreads during the the heatwave. Yeah, crazy scenes. That's the Mm. London Mayor, Sadiq Khan. Um, Wildfires are also burning across the Mediterranean. In Spain alone, at least 70,000 hectares have been destroyed by blazes. And that's double the annual average of the last decade. All these fires are caused by heat waves due to the climatic emergency that the planet is experiencing right now. Spain's Prime Minister Pedro Sanchez. And it's not just Europe. More than 100 million Americans are under heatwave warnings or heat advisories because of record temperatures. 85 major wildfires are burning in 13 US states and destroying more than 1.2 million hectares. Yeah, wild scenes, huh? Oh, my gosh. So speaking of wild scenes, Tom, you've got to watch this footage. It's absolutely extraordinary. There's mm. a excavator driver in Spain, um, and it shows him kind of like emerging from the flames across the hay. Um, and it looks like a scene out of a Hollywood movie. It's just remarkable that he made it out alive. We don't know how he's doing, um, but he was airlifted and taken mm. to hospital. And the founder of the Greens, Bob Brown, says the party shouldn't back the Labor government's 43% emissions reduction target without getting big concessions. So Labor wants to enshrine the 2030 target in law when Parliament resumes and is relying on the Greens to pass the bill in the Senate. And when asked whether the Greens should support the legislation as it currently stands, well, Bob Brown didn't hold back. Absolutely not. And nearly two million Australians voted for much greater action than Labor was putting forward. The Labor prescription of 43%, and certainly uh, it doesn't involve much action. It's much like business as usual. That was Bob Brown on 7.30 on the ABC last night. So the current leader, Adam Ban, has said he's open to negotiate but will ask for new coal and gas projects to be banned. So the reason it's interesting to hear from Bob Brown on this question at this point is that in 2009, when he was leading the party, the Greens blocked the Rudd government's carbon reduction policy because they didn't think it went far enough. And the way the politics played out at the time, that eventually led to Rudd's downfall and the rise of Tony Abbott, which meant we got a climate policy that was paralysed by politics and far less Mm. ambitious than the original one Labor had proposed. And the Greens were seen by many as to blame for stopping that policy getting ahead. And now it feels like Mm. if they don't pass this current target that's on the table, 
it'll be like history repeating. Yeah, absolutely. And it's it's a history that has definitely set us back. And, you know, a lot of people talk about coal and gas and the reason we can't move more swiftly in shutting down those industries because of unemployment. But I think we just need to look back to manufacturing and textiles. That happened. We used to have huge industries. They, cl- they closed down and went offshore and new industries and jobs can be created and that we need radical and swift action. The Australian Medical Association is calling for mask mandates to be reinstated because of the pressure the current Omicron wave is putting on our hospitals. A peak in cases is still to come over the next couple of weeks possibly and then the peak in hospitalisations will occur after that. And that is what is really scary. So at the moment, we've entered another wave which is going to be as bad if not as ba- worse than the one we had early in January. That was the AMA Vice President, Dr Chris Moy. Yesterday, Chief Medical Officer Paul Kelly urged employers to allow employees to work from home and wear masks. We know that wearing masks do reduce the spread and protect yourself and protect others. Yeah, so there's a lot of concern at the moment mm. and I guess a lot of consideration of what we should do about the current wave. Um, when you look at hospitalisations... Um, we've hit 5,000, which is very close to where they got to in the January wave. So that's why the hospitals are feeling such pressure and people are reconsidering these measures that will just slow down transmission. Yeah, and I don't understand the hesitancy about like towards masks. Like we mandate helmets and seat belts, but masks have become a bit of a like a culture war with those on the fringes seeing it as a, like an affront to their free speech or free choice. Like I feel that it's not just about masks, like people who are opposed to wearing masks, like regular people, I'm not talking pollies, just see masks as some kind of affront to freedom, which doesn't make sense given that we are a pretty regulated society in other ways. I think it's just because they're uncomfortable and annoying. It's not necessarily a political thing for most people. No, I, I said, you know, I think that those on the fringes don't, right. you know, just don't want to because they see it as some kind of, I don't know, like impeding on their freedom. But interestingly, last week when the PM had his fourth shot, which he you know, proudly took a photograph mm. with, he wasn't wearing a mask um, and the health worker wasn't wearing a mask. So it, despite some of the health advice saying we should wear masks and for a long time our politicians going, we listen to the best health advice, um, it seems that they're not listening right now. Well, they've got to weigh it up against so many other factors. I mean, that's why the health you know, the doctors aren't running the country. No, I know, but like wearing a mask, like how, like what are the fact, what are the other factors? I understand the working from home impacts people, not allowing people to travel. I mean, they have significant impacts on, on industry um, and employment, but wearing a mask, I don't know. I, don't, I just don't think it's, it, it, it's that big an inconvenience. Australia's energy regulator has had to step in again to stop Victoria running out of gas. Um, The regulator triggered the gas supply guarantee last night, meaning it ordered Queensland suppliers to send gas to New South Wales, which freed up gas for Victoria. The Queensland gas was originally slated to be sent overseas, and you may be wondering how exactly we are running out of gas, given Australia is one of the world's largest producers of natural gas. The thing is, we export about Mm. three quarters of what we produce. Yeah, so that's what this trigger does. It stops us doing that so that we make sure we have enough here. Mm. <laughs> Sounds like they run a bit close to the wire, doesn't it? Mm. Um, it comes one month after the regulator had to make the unprecedented decision of suspending the whole East Coast electricity market and compensate um, suppliers to put more energy back into the grid. So just shows we're in a pretty unstable situation with our energy supply. And the regulators warned the outlook is still fragile because the infrastructure is ageing and obviously in very high demand. 
And the review into the Reserve Bank begins today. Uh, It's the first one the Reserve Bank's gone through in 30 years and the first since they decided to try and keep inflation within the 2 to 3% target. Yeah, so the RBA has been criticised for rapidly lifting interest rates since May um, after saying they wouldn't go up until 2024. And the other main criticism is that rates were too high before the pandemic, hampering economic growth and employment. So this inquiry will look at its performance, its uh, inflation targeting interest rate policy and the makeup of the board and the way the board is appointed. There'll be three experts leading the review. Um, One is a Canadian central banker, and then there's two Australian experts who are supposedly independent, and it'll be finished by March next year. Mm. I wonder where interest rates will be by that point and what the impact will have been, whether it drives Australia into recession or not. Yeah, it's pretty significant. It's been three decades since we've looked into the RBA, um, and it has such, you know, obviously a huge impact on our lives. And academic research actually suggested um, up to 270,000 people spent time out of work ahead of the pandemic because the RBA held interest rates too Mm. high back then. Very interested to see what the findings are. Yeah, I actually did an assignment on the inflation targeting policy of the RBA at uni. Yeah. So, Basically, it has a very simple principle. If inflation goes above 3%, they put rates up. Uh, If inflation's going below 2%, they put rates down. So it's a very simple mechanism, Mm. but the economy is such a complex beast. So this will ask the same question my assignment was asking, whether this is the right way for our our rates to be set. And especially when you throw a pandemic curveball in. Mm. All right, Antoinette, we'll catch you again soon. Katrina's about to join me as we take a look at long COVID. All right, now to our briefing on long COVID and Katrina Blouse joins me to look at what the facts are telling us. So you're going to hear from an allied health professor in just a moment. But first, we thought we should get a sense of the experience of actually having it with Jess Davis. She's a journo at the ABC. She works in Canberra. She got COVID at New Year's, then tried to get back into work, but crashed around April and she's been on sick leave for two months now. Jess, thanks for joining us. How bad was your initial experience with COVID and when did you realise it wasn't going away? Yeah, so I got COVID at New Year's along with half the country Um, and I guess prior to COVID, I was really fit and active. I was running about 50Ks a week, going to the climbing gym a couple of times a week, going away on weekends, you know, I'm pretty outdoorsy. My initial COVID infection, I was quite sick for about three weeks, so it's pretty flawed. Uh, it was mostly the fatigue. And then as I sort of thought that I was better, I went for a run and it felt awful. My heart rate was really high even though I was running really slowly. And then I got sick again for another week. So I was a bit confused about that but didn't really put everything together for a while. And it's one of those things that, yeah, it it does take a while to work out what's going on because it's relapsing and remitting. So you might feel like you're getting better and then you do too much and you have a big crash again. And I was sort of managing everything once I realised I couldn't exercise. I could still manage work. So, you know, I was going to work, but I wasn't really doing anything else. I wasn't cooking. I wasn't cleaning. I wasn't seeing friends outside of work. I wasn't exercising. So I'd literally go to work, come home and sleep. And that was my life. And... I should have listened to my body a bit more during that time because I ended up having a really big crash uh, around April, May and 
that just meant that, you know, my baseline of what I was able to manage day-to-day tasks became even lower. So I had to stop working. You know, I rarely leave the house now. And seven months post-COVID, you know, on, on a good day, I can go for about a two-kilometre walk really slowly. Uh, and that's about it. Yeah, it is a funny illness in that it, it can take a little while to figure out what's going on. And there's also the process of elimination. You know, you have to go to the doctor and get tests and make sure that there's not another underlying condition because there is really no diagnosis of long COVID. It's a, it's a process of elimination. How has this impacted your life? How has it changed your life? I don't really go out much. So um, I I rarely see friends because that can be really tiring. I do try and, you know, catch up with someone once a week if I can, if if I have the energy for it. I'm not doing all the things that I used to love, like running and climbing and um, riding my bike. And I'm not working at the moment. Along with all of the symptoms, you know, the fatigue, the brain fog, you also have a loss of identity and sense of self um, and that can be really challenging mentally. You know, you have to kind of think of yourself as a, a whole different person and try not to compare yourself to who you were having pre-COVID. So are things on the up for you yet? You've been off work for two months. How do you see it going from here? Yeah, definitely. Not working has really um, helped me. I mean, in the initial stage, I I was so tired that I just couldn't do anything. But I've been doing a lot of research and finding out, you know, things that can help me manage my symptoms. That has helped me get to a point now where I am most days going for a small walk. I have more days without brain fog, which means that I can read, which I haven't been able to do for very long. Um, but but it's not a linear process. You know, I've had injuries before where you break a bone and you see this linear recovery process. So you can sort of see the light at the end of the tunnel. But with long COVID, it's up and down. So, you know, last week I was feeling really good and I was like, yep, I'm going to be able to go back to work. I feel really good. And then the last few days I've had another, you know, mini crash where the brain fog's back. I can't read. That uncertainty as well, not knowing when you're going to get better and how long it's going to take, that can be really difficult. Yeah, I imagine that would be a, a huge difficulty is navigating terrain whereby not much is known about this, not much is known about how to treat it. How have you found not just the reaction of family, friends, colleagues, but also of the medical community? Mostly it's been really supportive. I have a great GP, but we don't know much about this illness. I mean, we, we know about other post-viral illnesses and fatigue, but there's no medical treatment. There's no tests you can do to say, yes, this is what you have. So when I go to my GP, which I do quite often, you know, even just check in and have a chat and get a medical certificate, it's normally me telling him what I've learned about long COVID. He doesn't have the time to do the research. I'm on a waiting list for a long COVID clinic here in Canberra um, and I was onto that straight away. You know, I've been on that waiting list for a few months since it opened, but they can't tell me when I'll be able to get an appointment. Even when I do get in, if I get in, they're managing the symptoms, which is what I'm already trying to do on my own um, as best I can. There's no magical silver bullet that's going to fix this. It's time and looking after yourself and lots of rest. So you're up against some challenges there. You sense that your doctor hasn't done the research on it. You can't get access to the treatment you want. Do you feel like we're not doing enough to really deal with the reality of long COVID? Absolutely. And I think part of the reason for that is we just 
simply don't know. Like we're not counting it. We don't know how many people have it. You know, we have estimates, but we don't really know what the impact is. Um, what we do know is that of the clinics that do exist, there are really long waiting lists. So obviously there's huge demand. We have another wave right now. You know, winter is going to have a lot more people coming out the other end with long COVID symptoms. And I think that we really need to ramp up the supports in place for people. You know, I'm lucky I still have sick leave, but for a lot of people, they're not going to be able to work for months, you know, maybe six months a year. Long COVID is not considered a disability, so what kind of supports are in place in terms of um, finances as well, I think is something that we need to be talking about and looking at. So if you could leave people with one thing you would love them to know about long COVID, what would it be? Uh, Just because someone sounds okay and looks okay doesn't mean they're okay. By the end of the pandemic, you'll probably know someone who has long COVID. So just keep in touch, ask them how they are, if they need anything. So that's Jess Davis's personal experience. I reckon, Tom, it would be so frustrating to have a condition that doctors are still catching up on. Mm. Let's find out what the wider data is telling us now about long COVID. Andrew Bailey is a professor in allied health and a psychologist. He convenes the Long COVID Australia Collaboration, which is a research group on long COVID. Andrew, how is the condition defined? Long COVID is defined in a number of different ways, which is a little bit of a controversy. I think I prefer the World Health Organization definition, which is symptoms that persist for more than three months after the acute illness that lasts at least a month, and for which there's no other cause. So what are the most common symptoms of long COVID? Like, how do you know you've got it? Breathlessness, fatigue, brain fog, uh, sleep disturbances. There are rarer symptoms like hair falling out. People have a very wide range of things that can happen, but tiredness, fatigue, breathlessness, brain fog some anxiety, some depression, some post-traumatic stress in there as well. So in terms of how common this is, a a Uni of New South Wales study put the prevalence at about 5% of COVID cases. That one came out in the middle of last year. That, That seems really high on total cases. That could put the number of long COVID cases at 400,000. Do you reckon that's the best guide we've got so far on the prevalence of long COVID? Yes, I think that's one of the challenges we face in Australia. We've been so focused on acute COVID, we don't really have any really good local data on long COVID and we're really relying on international data. And 5% is probably reasonably safe. Around the world, you've got higher estimates. I think 5% is reasonably safe estimate to work with. Okay, so how severe can it be? How bad is it? I think for most people it is mild, uh, but for some people, and, and that's a really sizable chunk of people that we need to pay attention to, it can be very severe and debilitating. People who are unable to walk, people who are unable to look after themselves, are definitely unable to work, but it seems like that's relatively rare. So what we're hearing from people who who have had it or have it right now is the frustration they get when they go to the GP. They say they're having to school the GP on what the symptoms are and they're not really told how best to treat it beyond just resting. So what hope is out there for people who have it? What are the best things that are working so far? I think the first thing we need 
is for people to be listened to. You know, the symptoms are real and we need to validate those symptoms. And as health professionals, that's really crucial. The person is not making stuff up. It's actually what's happening for them. And I think that's the very first thing we need to do better. We've got a couple of theories about the cause. So our treatments are not fixing the cause. They're more likely to be helping people with the symptoms. And so the things that involve a rehab approach, uh, but it can depend on the, the main symptoms the person has. Sometimes that involves some form of pacing or exercise to get where the person's at and help them to move forward in a systematic way and really making sure we don't over push things and get uh, what's called post-exertional malaise. We really don't want that to happen. We're really doing the sorts of things that we know work with those symptoms from a whole range of issues. So do you think our response has been strong enough to long COVID? I mean, you said earlier that it has similarities to other post-viral fatigue syndromes. So if that's the case, can it be treated within our normal health system or do we need to go a lot further in treating this in a unique way? Um, Also, there's been questions raised as to whether if someone suffers from it for a long time, should they be covered by disability support? That's been discussed in the in the US. What do you think about our response? There's going to be multiple things we need to do. We obviously need to support GPs and people working in primary care, give them resources, give them training so that they feel confident to manage what they can manage. And then we need to make sure that people who don't respond to those sort of what the GP can provide or what an allied health professional, a physio, an OT, a psychologist in the community can help with. How do we get those people into a a specialist clinic? There are specialist clinics getting started in some of our hospitals around the country, but also paying attention to the fact that, that even then there will be some people who can't work, who've exhausted their sick leave and really need a bit more support, whether that's welfare or potentially when problems are really long-lasting, that actually does include disability support. And that's Professor Andrew Bailey from Sydney University. Yeah, and I'd say after hearing that, I don't get the sense that we need to drastically ramp up or change our response to COVID because of the impacts of long COVID. It sounds like, as Andrew was saying, it does have similar challenges to other post-viral syndromes, which we do try and deal with as best we can within our normal health systems. I guess the big difference here, Katrina, is that, and the reason we really need to properly understand this and keep researching it is that the numbers could be really high given the high prevalence of COVID. Yeah, and with that, I guess, you know, as Andrew said, people just need to be heard and need to be believed because imagine having something that's so debilitating. Sounds like Jess's life has completely turned around. And then you've got that added factor of people not calling it a real thing. So that's probably where we need to start changing those conversations. Tomorrow on The Briefing, uh, we're talking about the State of the Environment Report. It came out this week. Labor are accusing the coalition of sitting on it since last December because it was such grim reading. So we're going to speak to one of the authors of this report and just find out how bad the environment's been tracking over the last five years. Listener.